coming up, a bonus edition of the Sark Fighter podcast. So I was saying, you know, one of the first things that we noticed when um, we started the Sarcoid program at MUSC in 2015 was that there was an extremely high no-show rate. Having sarcoidosis is bad enough, but what if you had to fight other barriers as well? What I would like to see happen is more understanding from physicians, more understanding from the people around us. Um, I really want people to get educated about what sarcoidosis is. In this special edition, listen in as a leading doctor and two others who know sarcoidosis unfortunately a bit too well discuss how hard it is just to get to the point where you can get proper treatment. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Hello and welcome. As I said, this is a bonus episode of the Sark Fighter Podcast. I'm your host, John Carlin. This is a rebroadcast of a recent FSR seminar, which I hosted, entitled Universal Barriers Dealing with Chronic Disease, a Sarcoidosis Perspective. And today, it's all about shining a light on the problems that many people face in just getting treatment for sarcoidosis. Yeah, it's bad enough to have the disease and all the issues that come with it, but then what if you couldn't get to the doctor? Or what if you could seldom get to the doctor? What if they told you to eat right, but you can't get to a store that sells anything but chips and Twinkies? And what if your doctor just doesn't believe you when you tell that doctor that you're fatigued or you have blurred vision or that you have a pain in your chest and they just sort of disregard it and they they tend to do that for certain groups of people, believe it or not. So in late January of 2022, I hosted an FSR event that looked at the struggles that people with SARC can face beyond the disease itself. Now FSR, and I will tell you, I, I also believe that it is time to look at these issues because they are real. And as near as anyone can tell, they're not going away anytime soon, certainly not on their own. So the first thing we need to do as a community of SARC patients and and physicians and researchers is to get this out there. Let's recognize the problems so that all the stakeholders can begin to address some solutions. Now, the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research put together a great panel. Dr. Ennis James of the Pulmonary Faculty at the Medical University of South Carolina, Uh, and Dr. James is a member of the FSR Scientific Advisory Board, and uh, the uh, university there, the Medical University of South Carolina, is one of the the go-to places for SARC treatment in the United States. So he's on the panel. Jim Kuhn is also there. He's a fellow FSR advocate and SARC fighter, and he brings in his background in corporate planning to the board. I would say that Jim's probably the most active advocate we have. Um, and I don't want to take anything away from anybody else. I'm just trying to, to show you uh, that, that Jim is one of the guys who just steps up all the time. And, and he is, um, he, he's just constantly doing stuff. He's actually the advocate that I report to. 
okay, uh, who, who manages a group of us and keeps us all on task. So, uh, and I will tell you that at the time of this recording, he uh, is having a very difficult time with his sarcoidosis. He's undergone a number of flares recently. And, uh, you know, so it, it took everything he had in the bucket honestly, to get to the seminar and to be present and to help. And so uh, that just kind of shows you his dedication. And then uh, Chasta Posey, uh, who's an African-American woman with SARC, that is the group most likely to get sarcoidosis for reasons science cannot yet explain. Um, and she's had a really tough run with it. She's lost vision in one eye because of SARC. She has heavy involvement of sarcoidosis in many of her organs. And yet Chasta, a fellow advocate, um, is extremely energetic and enthusiastic and, and in volunteers uh, in, in many ways with the foundation. So together, the three of them will paint the picture of how the deck can be stacked against people who can, through no fault of their own, struggle just to get treatment. And that's coming up. I feel like a zombie Just feeding at stumbling Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Well, hello everybody. I'm Mindy Buchanan. I'm the director of patient uh, director of patient programs at the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here tonight for a webinar on universal barriers in dealing with chronic disease, a sarcoidosis perspe perspective. I'd also like to start by thanking our sponsor of this webinar, Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals. So. Um, a big thank you to Mallinckrodt for their support of our educational programming here at FSR. So thank you to Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals for that. So before we begin, I'm going to give a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, the webinar has been extended and is now scheduled for up to 90 minutes without a Q&A. So you will see that the chat and the Q&A function have been turned off. However, we will be opening up the chat feature at the end of the webinar for your input. So you'll definitely want to stay tuned for that. We'll be recording the full webinar and it will be available to you before the end of the week. You'll also always be able to find it on our video library page on our website and I'll add that link in the chat for you as well. We will be able to chat to you guys, um, but you won't be able to chat to us until the end of the webinar. Um, you'll also be able to listen to this webinar on the Starfighter podcast. And if you have questions or run into technical difficulties, please email me at mindy at stopsarcoidosis.org, and I will try to address this issue um, if you're having it in real time. Um, I will pop the email in the chat as well. Um, so tonight, we'll be discussing universal barriers experienced by people's, people with chronic disease. And when we say barriers, we're talking about factors that drive health outcomes, such as where you live, how much education you have, whether you're considered obese, or struggle with mental health. One of FSR's main priorities is to continue to work with our community to identify and understand these universal barriers that exist for all patients and to continue to fight for equitable health care for everyone dealing with sarcoidosis. With us tonight are three amazing panelists who we'll introduce in just a moment. 
But first, I want to introduce you to our moderator for the evening, award-winning news anchor and sarcoidosis warrior and FSR patient advocate, John Carlin. John is the host of the Sarcoider podcast, a podcast specifically for individuals whose lives are impacted by sarcoidosis and other rare chronic illnesses. Welcome, John. Thank you again for being with us. I'm pleased to hand over the mic to you. All right. Thank you, Mindy. I appreciate that. And uh, welcome to our panelists and welcome to everybody who is joining us online tonight. We are going to cover a lot of ground tonight, and I think this is going to be uh, an eye-opening presentation for a lot of people, because when we talk about these barriers to healthcare, um, we're going to really, really drill down into that, and our panelists are the perfect people to help us do that tonight. And so I would like to just read the bios, uh, bios of each of them, and then we're going to start out with, with an exercise tonight. So I'll begin with Chasta Posey. Chasta is a 16-year survivor of sarcoidosis. She has served in several roles during her tenure at FSCR, including patient ambassador, patient advocate, patient navigator, and peer mentor. She also serves as the upstate representative for the Sarcoidosis Foundation of South Carolina, and Chasta really enjoys helping people. And uh, Chasta has been on the podcast with me a couple of times. We've met in person at an advocate meeting, and she is absolutely wonderful. And Chasta, um, we look forward to hearing your perspective tonight. Moving on, I've got uh, Jim Kuhn. Jim is a rare disease warrior, advocate, speaker, mentor. He is pretty much all everything in the FSR world. Uh, he was diagnosed in 2014 with sarcoidosis that initially started in his lungs and lymph nodes before quickly spreading to his eyes and his skin. And most recently, he was also diagnosed with neurosarcoidosis. He also suffers from several other uh, related rare diseases and complicated medical condition. Jim is passionate about helping other sarcoidosis patients and giving them tips to understand and live with the disease as well as find knowledgeable healthcare providers. Jim spent 35 plus years in global business and medical mission leadership roles and now looks forward to using that experience and does to help create, implement, and strengthen the patient advisory roles within FSR. And his specialty is in developing highly functioning teams and servant leadership. And Jim and his wife of 33 years, Jean, refused to let his disability, and I can speak to this having observed it firsthand, refused to let the disability ruin their enjoyment of life. Jim enjoys uh, spending short periods of time gardening and is an accomplished cook and has won multiple awards in national chili cook-offs. But Jim, we will not be taking any questions about chili during our presentation here tonight, I'm sorry. <clears throat> All right, very good. Moving on, Dr. Ennis James. Uh, Dr. James became interested in sarcoidosis as a pulmonary and critical care fellow at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University and joined the pulmonary faculty at the Medical University of South Carolina in 2015. Dr. James is a member of the FSR Scientific Advisory Board and FSR's Clinical Studies Network and serves as the program director for the Susan Pearlstein Sarcoidosis Center of Excellence. He strongly believes in its vision to improve the lives of sarcoidosis patients by providing coordinated patient-focused multidisciplinary and cutting-edge sarcoidosis research. 
He is happy to see sarcoidosis patients with any type of organ involvement. And uh, for additional information about the sarcoidosis program, uh, we do have uh, uh, some, uh, some information, that, a link you can click on if you would like to go see uh, Dr. James. And he has also appeared on the Sark Fighter podcast. And so uh, I have uh, had the opportunity and the, the pleasure of speaking with him. So let's get into what it is that we want to talk about tonight. We'll be discussing health factors and barriers that essentially impact health outcomes, often, unfortunately, in a negative way, uh, and life expectancy for people with sarcoidosis. And more than 50% of your health overall, whether it's sarcoidosis or anything else, anything, anything else, excuse me, is determined by one factor. So it'd be interesting if we can start off now with a little poll to see if you in the audience can guess what that factor is. And we have a uh, full screen that we are going to put up right now, and you should be able to see it. Which factor do you think has the biggest impact on your health outcome and life expectancy? Is it tobacco use, diet and exercise, alcohol and drug use, your provider, your provider care, your physician, your income, your health insurance, your zip code, your education, or your occupation. Please take about 20 seconds and please vote. And at some point, Mindy, I can assume, I will assume that you can show me those results. I know the answer, but I wanna see what the audience thinks. And I'm sure our panelists are dying to know as well. Yeah, John, we have about 80% of folks who voted. I do know that we have a couple people who are having some technical difficulties with their sound, and I've emailed some of those folks back. Um, so hopefully uh, they'll be able to get sound back. I will go ahead and close if we think we're close. You guys ready? There you go. So you can see that, John. I've got too many things open on my screen. Oh, here we go. Let me just share there, those results. Now I got it. Okay. There we go. Oh, look at this. So uh, most people think that it's diet and exercise, 45%. 3% said tobacco, 3% said alcohol, drug use, 11% said it's your doctor, 6% said income, 8% said health insurance, 19% said zip code and 4% said education, 0% said your occupation. Okay, so the real answer, however, is zip code. Uh, and Mindy, do you have a graphic that you wanna share at this point? Yes, I do, sorry, I was on mute there. I was talking while I was doing it, yes, okay. I do. One second. All right, so there we see it, right? <clears throat> The social determinants of health are the conditions and the environments where people were born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and so forth and so on. Zip code is more important than your genetic code, up to 60% in the latest study, which was published in 2019. So there is a lot going on here. And some people are saying, well, your zip code, how can that make such a big difference? And I think, Dr. James, we have got you teed up to kind of take a stab at that. So can you shed some light on why zip code 
is the most important determining factor? I'll do my best. And, and I appreciate the 11% of people who gave uh, physicians credit, but actually um, we don't get as much credit as we like to think we do in terms of determining outcomes. And, you know, just like you said, John, you know, 50 to 60% of it can actually be related to your zip code. And in reality, that comprises two things. One is socioeconomic factors and the other is physical environment. We'll talk about physical environment here in a couple of slides, but the socioeconomic factors, a lot of studies have actually shown that that is a stronger correlation to outcomes more than really any other determination. And it's really kind of simple things that when you think about it, it starts to kind of make sense. And so family support, for example, if you grow up in a family where health is not a priority and your parents never went to the doctor or your parents had a mistrust of the healthcare community, you're much less likely to seek healthcare and going to have worse outcomes. Obviously, if you live in a community where, you know, you can't walk down the street without having to worry about violence or something else going on bad, um, that can affect outcomes. Income and education, there's a lot of overlap there, as you could imagine. Um, the higher the education, usually the higher the income and vice versa. And, you know, income also relates a lot to actually having health insurance, which we know is, uh, you know, correlates to improving outcomes. Most people who have jobs tend to have more education and higher incomes and also are more likely to have health insurance. You know, the traditional things that we all think about is really determining health outcomes like, you know, tobacco and alcohol use. Certainly they play an important role here is 30% of social determinants of health, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. So if you think about it specifically in relation to sarcoidosis, um, smokers, for example, are less likely to actually get sarcoidosis. But once you have sarcoidosis, if you smoke, your outcomes are actually worse. And there's a lot of data behind, you know, alcoholism and it leading to um, poor compliance with medications, less likely to have follow-up with physicians. You know, people who have good diets and regular exercise, they definitely, you know, have better outcomes. Um, healthcare is certainly important. You know, you need to see a physician who has some idea how to manage your disease and hopefully, you know, as part of a partnership with patients. Um, but it's a smaller percentage than you would expect. But there is a lot of overlap. So for example, if you don't have a job and you have low income, you're less likely to have transportation options to actually get to your healthcare appointments. And so while each of these components has a specific percentage associated with it, there is a lot of overlap and interplay between these two areas. If you can go to the next slide, Mindy. And so obviously each of these health factors affects the length of your life, but also the quality of your life. And so if you can go to the next slide. And so just as a real world example of why your zip code matters, these are four different cities in the U.S., and if you look at the different areas pointed out, these are separated geographically by a mile or two, but you can look the difference in the average age or survival is almost 30 years in some of these areas. And it's still amazing to me to look at these maps and think that somebody that literally lives a mile down the road from you is more likely to live 86 years compared to 64 years. So if you can go to the next slide. And so we talked about physical environment earlier, and that has a lot to do with air and water quality. And again, I talked about the interplay between socioeconomic status 
and some of these other factors. And, you know, the best example of how that works is a community in Los Angeles where they did a study looking at the differences between certain income areas and pollution areas and education. And they actually found the areas in LA with the worst air quality, people who lived in those areas had lower rates of health insurance. There were more minorities. There was more crowded housing, so poorer airflow. There was a lack of transportation options and lower socioeconomic status together. And so you can imagine there's these people living in an area of LA who have a lot of disadvantages and barriers to begin with. And then you add on top of that, this compounding factor of having a physical environment with poor air quality and poor water quality that's compounding all these other barriers they're already facing. And if you think about it specifically in relation to sarcoidosis, if you can go to the next slide, there's some data even in South Carolina, and I'll totally admit my bias, you know, this is my home state, but this was a study that Mark Judson did back in the 90s where he looked at the prevalence of South Carolina, prevalence of sarcoidosis throughout South Carolina and the different geographic regions. And part of the reason that he wanted to do this study is based on the theory that, you know, obviously sarcoidosis we think is triggered by an environmental exposure that causes the immune system to have an abnormal response. And the environments in these different regions of South Carolina are significantly different in terms of what your potential environmental exposures are. And what he found was that in both Black South Carolinians and White South Carolinians, as you approach the coast, the prevalence of sarcoidosis increases. However, for some reason in Black South Carolinians, the prevalence along the coast was much higher than expected just based on population differences. The only other predictor of sarcoidosis rates in this study was having a low socioeconomic status. And so we've talked a lot about the social determinants of health, the interplay of all these social determinants of health. And obviously this is not just, you know, with high blood pressure and coronary artery disease and any respiratory disease. This specifically applies to South Carolina and actually appreciate everybody coming tonight to be able to, to learn more about it. And hopefully we'll, we'll do our job and you'll leave more informed. All right. Thank you, Dr. James. Chas, is this, is this ringing true with you from your perspective? Um, absolutely. And, you know, being in South Carolina with Dr. James, it, it, he, I just learned something totally new as well. Growing up in the area that I grew up in, the closest doctor's office to us was probably 20 minutes away. So the transportation factor plays into that. The location factor plays into that. So the zip code thing, it really makes sense. And it it answers a lot of the questions that I've had with, in, with the discussions with Dr. James and I. So, uh, yeah, it's not surprising. It just now makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's interesting. So now, Dr. James, let's talk about the 80% of the factors that, you know, we've talked about the 80% of factors, but let's take a look at the 20% of, of the other factors that impact people. So what are the, some of the, the challenges that these factors and barriers pose for patients, like within the clinical setting, for example, once you get inside the hospital? Oh, Dr. James, Dr. you're muted. Dr. James, you're muted. I'm sorry. My fault. <laughs> so I was saying, you know, one of the first things that we noticed when um, we started the sarcoid program at MUSC in 2015 was that there was an extremely high no-show rate for the sarcoidosis population. Actually, in the sarcoid clinic, we had the highest no-show and same-day cancellation rate um, 
in the Department of Medicine, which is a lot of providers, believe me. And so when we looked into this, we actually realized that it wasn't patients just not caring about, you know, wanting to come to their appointments. We actually found that the patients with the highest no-show rates or same-day cancellation rates were typically the ones with the worst disease. So they were, you know, mid-40s, low socioeconomic status, Medicare, Medicaid patients um, who just didn't have many transportation options or they had multiple kids that they couldn't find, you know, daycare for. Um, and so, you know, the traditional approach to that for a lot of hospital systems, when you have high no-show rates is to say, okay, well, we need to fill this clinic. Let's just overbook. Let's just add more patients to the schedule and fill those spots for the patients that don't show up. And what we found in kind of frustratingly was that obviously, you know, somebody has got to be sitting there saying, well, what about all these patients that can't make it to their appointment? Are we just going to say, well, you know, tough, you're just going to have to you know, deal with it on your own. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been working on is, is trying to, you know, help patients get to their appointments, give them reminder calls, that sort of thing. If they have issues, change to virtual visits and be flexible with how we deliver our healthcare. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of bias, I think, with how physicians approach healthcare in general with patients. Um, you know, there's one thing that is pretty common, I guess, across all diseases, and that, you know, is obesity. And so, you know, a lot of physicians, they'll see an obese patient and they may not overtly say oh, this, you know, this patient's obese, you know, they're going to have high blood pressure, you know, they just need to lose weight. What we need to realize from a physician standpoint is that there's a lot of different things that contribute to obesity and that we need to have some perspective and understand what, you know, patients may have gone through, whether it's depression contributing to it, whether it's medications that we've prescribed contributing to it. Um, so there's a lot of things I think going on that um, we could do better to help address some of those issues in the healthcare system. Yeah. I don't know what you do about that, except you, um, do you uh, do you just kind of work with doctors to try and get them to see things differently? Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's sort of three big things, I guess. You know, one would be ensure as a physician that we're all informed. And that, in my opinion, goes beyond just, you know, being aware of guidelines and current recommendations on treatment. But, you know, realizing the barriers that are out there. The other thing is, you know, being an advocate for patients, you know, try to look at the physician-patient relationship as a partnership, understand how those social determinants of health can affect the outcomes for your patients, being willing to adjust your care delivery to accommodate patients, and just educating patients. Half the time when I see a new sarcoid patient, they are so hungry for knowledge because they've been Googling things and they don't know, you know, if half of it's true. And, you know, half the time when they say, well, this is what I read, you know, it's actually not true. And so there's not a great you know, library out there of knowledge for patients. And then again, with the biases, I think it's important for physicians to assess their biases, acknowledge them, and then address them, you know, try to take steps to actually, you know, admit your own limitations. And FSR has a lot of good things on the website to specifically help physicians with those types of uh, barriers and helping decrease in barriers with their own patients. All right. Very good. Well, we want to move on and, and as we continue to look at these barriers. And this next exercise that we're going to do um, is really illustrative of what people 
are up against when they have this disease. And we talked about zip codes. We talked about some some of the bias. But so, Jim, I want to bring you in and you have uh, an exercise that you would like to explain to people. And it's it's very simple to do. Um, and so you kind of kind of set it up and then we will do it. OK, great. Thanks, John. And uh, I first have to apologize to the group. I'm, I'm in the middle of a sarcoidosis flare up. So uh, most of you will understand that. So my voice is a little froggy and scratchy. So, you know, as rare disease patients, we constantly have to fight. We have to fight for the right doctors. We have to fight insurance companies for treatments. We, we have to fight as Dr. James mentioned before, we have to fight for the right information and, and accurate information. We have to fight, hopefully, for a cure or at least for uh, for some relief for our uh, for our disease. Uh, we experience so many challenges in navigating our disease that it's hard to acknowledge uh, the challenges that we don't have to deal with and and how these the absence of these challenges might impact our health outcomes in a positive way. So I want us to walk through an exercise that will help identify our own personal experiences and the balance, uh, the bar- uh, barriers that uh, that we experience, and to get a better understanding uh, that of the experiences that others have and the various uh, barriers and factors that impact our care. So we're going to have a, a quick little exercise. I want everybody to get out a pen and a paper. And, uh, and on the next couple of screens, we're going to see a list of questions. Uh, and on this first slide, we have seven questions. Uh, on your paper, I want you to mark out uh, 18 little tick marks, okay? And uh, on uh, each little tick mark for uh, the first slide, uh, we have... Uh, Uh, seven questions. And the first seven are about who you are. These identify you as a person. So there's a total of 18 questions. So uh, write 18 little tick marks, tally marks. Each barrier or characteristic is worth uh, one point. So as you read through these first seven questions, remove one tally mark for each of your barriers or characteristics that describes you. So um, make a little check mark if this describes you. So, if you're obese, make a little check mark. If you if you can identify as LGBTQ plus, uh, make a check mark. So, uh, I'll give you about sixty seconds to read through these, and if you can identify uh, this as who you are, uh, make a little check mark. Uh, if this does not describe you, leave your check. I'll leave your tick mark blank. And, uh, and it'll be fine. Maybe about 10 more seconds and wrap up. The next one's a little bit longer. All right, we're going to the next slide. And on this next slide, uh, this kind of describes your life circumstances, what goes on in and around you, your, uh, your environment. So uh, I want you to read through these 11 uh, barriers or circumstances. And again, if uh, this applies to you, then I want you to, to mark off uh, your tick mark or your tally mark. And as you read through, check it off. And then when you get done, I want you to add up the total number of tally marks, check marks that you have, and total them up. 
And once you complete, we'll uh, we'll go from there. And you'll have another another uh, about minute. So uh, read through them and total them up. Okay, about ten more seconds to wrap up. So total up your score from both screens. What I'm going to ask you to do, uh, if you have uh, say six check marks, I want you to total up your uh, score, and you would have say a total of six out of 18. On the next screen, we're gonna ask you to report your score by entering it in the total. Your final score would be, um, uh, you're gonna actually subtract that from the 18. So 18 minus six would be 12. So we're gonna ask you to enter in 12 as your total score. So we want you to enter in your net score. So again, if you have six check marks, you would subtract six from 18, leaving you with 12. So we're gonna open up the poll here and ask you to enter in your net, net score. So Mindy, you wanna go ahead and open it up? This should be interesting to see with the, the large group that we have. I think we have more than 300 folks uh, in the group today. After you enter in your score, enter submit, just popping in here, Jim, just to let you know where we are, because I think I'm the only one that can see the poll. <laughs> um, we're about at 82% of folks have voted. Great. So I'm going to give folks another, you know, 30 seconds to go ahead and get their vote in if they want to be added. We got better results than the presidential race. Well, we're getting up there 84% now, so that's pretty good. All right. I'm going to go ahead and end it now and, and uh, stop this and share with you guys. And there you go. Okay, so um, what do we have here? One barrier, let's see, three or less was 18%, four to seven was 17%, eight to 11 for a score, 4%, 11 to 13 was 10%, 14 to 17 was 49%, and 18 was 3%. So, Jim, if I'm looking at this properly, what I'm seeing is most people landed uh, with, they started out with 18, so that, you know, there's 14 to 17. So even with that, there's multiple factors, right? Yeah, yeah. So more than, just slightly more than 50% had uh, between uh, four or less barriers, but four is that's significant barriers to, to your healthcare. But uh, yeah, thanks, Jim. I just want to pop in again, just in case so people kind of get their head wrapped around this. We know it's kind of a fun little math problem. Who doesn't like math? Um, right. it, the, the lower your number, the, the more barriers you have. Yeah. So I just want to make sure that's out there and clear. Yeah. Right. So so 17% have, um, they started out with 18 things, and they, they scored between four and seven. And 18% had three or less. So, I mean, that's, that's a, an immense number of barriers yeah. that some people are facing. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's illustrative of what's going on here, right? 50% of the respondents had, uh, well, my head is fuzzy from the start, but a lot, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of barriers. Sure. So it's right. Uh, right. Well, it's seven, I mean, we've seven got, or more we've got, barriers, right? Seven looks seven, like uh, 48 percent um, yeah. scored in the in the first 
several categories here. So yeah. 14 to 17 was 49 and 18 was 3%. So uh, that gives you what, 52. So 48 is the rest of them. So uh, obviously a large, large number of barriers. And, you know, but I want to point out that this is one of the reasons that we call sarcoidosis a snowflake disease, yeah. because I've had people come on the podcast who are probably like they, they had no check marks. They're the 18 out of 18, you know, white males come from good, solid financial backgrounds. Um, they've got insurance, all the different things. So they, they aren't taking anything off, but they're still very sick people. Yeah. They're just not facing all the other obstacles that everybody else is facing when we look at this. Right. And I think that's the thing that we want to point out. So so when we look at these obstacles, the thing that we're trying to illustrate here tonight is that everybody who's involved in this tonight is involved in the sarcoidosis space in one way or another, or you wouldn't be sitting here. I'm sure there's much better viewing on Netflix tonight than what we're talking about, unless you're somehow invested in, in sarcoidosis in one way or another, right? So, um, but, but some people are facing greater obstacles of overcoming, getting over the hump that sarcoidosis is now creating in your life or, or in many cases, sarcoidosis plus other diseases. So Jim, is, is that your takeaway from this exercise? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's a little shocking. There, there's a lot of people in this world carrying a lot of burdens and, um, we all face a, a lot of challenges and, uh, and, you know, and some of the roles that, that I work with, with FSR, especially as a navigator and advocate, you know, we, we try to help people knock down some of those barriers. And, um, but even with that, I, I'm surprised at these numbers. Well, you know, one of the things that, that we had um, uh, talked about already is the fact that people already have a bias towards people with obesity, but yeah. some people can't help being obese, right? And some people can't help all of these factors that they've had to put checks next to, which are creating their risk factors. They're creating additional risk factors for them. Yeah, Dr. James mentioned that already. And, and obesity is a great example because you're right. Um, many people like to point out obesity uh, as an easy one, as a, a patient's fault. However, obesity is very complex health condition. Um, there's a lot of medications, steroids, especially that can cause excessive weight gain. Uh, that's hard to get off. And then there's uh, hormonal imbalances that cause weight gain, regardless of your diet or exercise regimen or otherwise health. Um, uh, depression causes uh, weight gain and chronic um, conditions like sarcoidosis. Uh, about half the people uh, who suffer from that uh, suffer from depression as well. Uh, so let's walk through some of the the obstacles that people who are obese uh, uh, live with to, to get an understanding of just this, this one thing of, of obesity. So, you know, some people uh, like the exercise obstacle, some people live in unsafe neighborhoods where you just can't go out for a run or a walk during the daytime, much less the evening. Um, you, you know, childcare responsibilities just don't allow uh, you know, to, to drop everything and go to a workout during the day or the night after work. Uh, 
you know, in, in speaking of work, some people have to have multiple jobs. So exercise is a, is a luxury they don't have the time for or the money for. So uh, nutrition and, and healthy eating is, is an obstacle. Uh, people that live in lower income and, and food insecure neighborhoods, uh, it's a challenge. You know, the reality is non-perishable food and, and like uh, you know, pre-packed uh, prepared foods are just a whole lot easier to shop for. They shelf stable. They can just uh, buy a bunch of canned food and, and put it in the closet. Um, you know, it's it's tough to shop several times a week, which means it's hard to you know buy things that are are fresh. And uh, you know, because of work and childcare, it's it's hard to get out a couple times a week to shop and. You know, grocery stores are closing down in uh, tough neighborhoods and there aren't fresh produce in farmers markets in those neighborhoods anymore. So uh, it's tough to buy fresh foods and it's tough to buy good foods. It's, uh, the reality is it's easier to cook a pot of uh, macaroni and cheese and pasta and foods that last, uh, you know, a couple servings than it is to make some fresh fish and, and vegetables. It, it's just easier. It's uh, you know, all those conditions go into just one factor, like obesity. It's not as easy as pointing at saying there's a fat person that just doesn't work out. Uh, the fact is, any one of these barriers or factors could be easy enough to impact the care. Uh, however, many patients experience multiple factors, like we just saw on the chart. Uh, and it could be at one time or over, you know, a period of time. Well, so what you know, our exercise that we just went through demonstrates is, you know, the lower the number, the more obstacles to, to care the person has, whether it is within or outside the, their environment. Uh, and whether those obstacles are, are tied to who they are or the circumstances in which they live. Uh, just to, to point out what uh, Mindy says, statistically, the lower the number uh, that you have, the more likely you are to experience poorer outcomes as a result. So just say that again, that you know, the, the people in the lower part that John, as you pointed out, the, the 43% or the 48%, they're gonna experience poorer health outcomes. And the bottom line, that we as a community, it's important for us to focus on reducing the barriers for all patients uh, particularly those who are heavily impacted by those con compounding factors. I mean, it's uh, it's our Jim, responsibility let me, too. Yeah. Let me let me jump in because I was supposed to have asked you and Chast if you'd share your scores. Do you mind doing that? What's that? What was your score? What was my score? I'm a four, so I'm I'm in that second tier. Uh, so I I have some barriers, and I. I face them every day, but I consider myself lucky that I'm, you know, I'm in that tough, top tier. Chasta? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I feel um, right in the middle. Um, and I marked off eight of those things off the list. So I was kind of straddling the fence. So I'm right in the but middle. So, but you had, you had eight barriers yep. to your health care. Yep. So, so is okay. this... Is this exercise resonating with you? Absolutely. And had I did this exercise 
17 years ago when I was first diagnosed, I'm more than certain I would have more. Really? So, yes. so, okay. All right. Interesting. Dr. James, what do you, what do you make of this? Uh, is this a valid exercise? Sorry, I did it again. Uh, I said, absolutely. Um, no, I mean, I think this is, you know, again, something I think patients should do to realize what sort of barriers may be there other than just, you know, having a chronic disease. And, you know, my personal bias is I think this is something that physicians should do as well, or at least have the perspective of, you know, what their patients are actually facing. Um, and I think, Mindy, you had um, had a slide maybe to, to talk about how we may be able to overcome some of these things. So, so I actually like this image here. Um, and I kind of want to orient everybody to, to how this relates to our discussion, because obviously we're not sitting there watching a soccer game. Um, but I want everybody to think of this fence as all the systemic barriers and healthcare barriers that we all have. And you could think about, you know, the taller person who actually can see the game. And if you think of the game as more of, you know, what we want for having good healthcare outcomes, you know, this tall person who can see the game and can enjoy it is the person who didn't tick off any of those marks. You know, he's sitting there at 18, whereas this lady in the middle could be, you know, somewhere in the middle, you know, has a little bit of trouble seeing the game, but still is able to peek over. And then, you know, the people who are down, you know, they ticked off 15 of these things and they're down at, you know, less than 10, um, you know, they can't see the game at all. And so, you know, how we want to impact this in a perfect world would be actually the third image. You know, obviously in a perfect world, we'd be able to wipe all those barriers out, have a transparent fence, didn't matter how tall you were, and the fence would even be lower and you'd be able to see through it. So everybody gets to be able to see the same thing. But in reality, what we're forced to do these days is actually find the patients who have these barriers and give them the support they need. And so it's almost kind of like an inverse, even though you can think of all three of these individuals as having the exact same sarcoidosis. Let's say they've all got lung involvement, skin involvement, and eye involvement, and they all see the same physician. But the person on the right, you know, they have four kids at home, they have three jobs, they are Medicaid, and they have low socioeconomic status, their health care is going to be much harder for them. And so as a physician, if I know the guy on the left side is going to show up to every appointment and he's highly educated and he's got a good, good level of income, um, great knowledge base, I'm going to worry less about him. And to be honest, I'm going to be a lot more worried about the person on the right. And as we think about how we can impact all patients, when we find new things that can help the people who need it the most, the guy on the left is still going to benefit. And so one example of this, I think, is so we're actually starting to use smartphone apps more in our sarcoid clinic to help with fatigue management, because the traditional way of getting patients to pulmonary rehab and to counseling to help with chronic fatigue management, it's just really not accessible for patients who may live in rural locations or um, may not have a pulmonary rehab center nearby. And so what we found is that creating this app specifically for those people who don't have access to that sort of resource, that app is then available to everybody. And so it's something that becomes a resource for everybody, although we're developing it initially to help the patients who need it the most. 
All right, gotcha. So, so this this looks like uh, utopia there in the third slide, where we where we can change the fence, so we don't have to manu- manipulate the boxes that the people are standing on. That everybody just kind of has a fair shot at it, right? But do you think there's anything we can do to to get to that? And and while you answer that, I want to let people know that we're going to open up the chat. We're not taking questions. But we would like to know if you have any suggestions for uh, ways that we can create the situation with the fence here where, where what you have is everyone can see the game because the systemic barriers have been removed, the, that being the fence. So you've changed the fence, the systemic barriers are gone, and people were ticking off those, those check boxes. Um, now all have the same opportunity to see the game as it were. So, Dr. James? Um, so, and again, some of this here is, is personal opinion. So um, take it with a grain of salt. But I, my personal opinion, specifically when it comes to sarcoid, is, you know, I think there's three different areas that we need to focus on. One is with the patients. One is with physicians and healthcare, And one is with government. So with government, the best example I have and specifically in South Carolina, sarcoidosis is not listed as one of the diseases that you can get applied, that you can apply for disability for in our state. And so that usually causes disability applications to just outright get you know, rejected, or it takes them three to five years to after hiring multiple lawyers to actually get there. And so the advocacy on a government level to decrease some of those barriers raise awareness with the people who actually can affect policy is super important. From a physician standpoint and a healthcare system standpoint, you know, doing things that can make healthcare access easier for people, whether it's, you know, offering different clinic hours or offering more virtual appointments or just being flexible with people. If their ride falls through, just say, hey, no big deal. We'll change you to a virtual visit. So they don't end up just being, you know, a no-show or a same-day cancellation. Um, And then trying to come up with these novel ideas that can be easily disseminated across different areas. So for example, another thing that we're working on is another smartphone app where anybody can download it with Sarcoid And it actually has screening questionnaires to screen for dangerous organ involvement, which I think is important and all physicians should do. But I can't physically go out there and educate every physician about how to screen for dangerous organ involvement. So why not put the tool in the hands of the patients who then can go to their physician and say, hey, look, this crazy doctor at MUSC says that I should be having an EKG or I should get a annual kidney function test done. And then the third part is with patients. You know, I can't emphasize enough how much of a difference patient education makes. You know, patients feeling empowered to understand their disease, being able to have those conversations. And a lot of time the case may be, they actually may be educating their physician if they're not really familiar with sarcoidosis, but if that's all they have nearby, then they've got to do the best with what they have. Interesting. So, so that is, I mean, it's, that's a long the reason that we're all here is because we want to see that third diagram. We want to see the fence become, you know, not the high fence, but the fence that they can see through. Uh, and we, and therefore we're removing these barriers. But when we look at Chasta, when we look at uh, 
the people who are most likely to have the greatest impact in terms of the most barriers combined with the greatest statistical likelihood to have sarcoidosis, we wind up with African-American women, do we not? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's, 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 that's what happens when we look at this analytically. Right. So one of the ways that I'm combating, you know, the fight with sarcoidosis is I am a huge advocate for you actually being your own advocate. And Dr. James will tell you from our own personal patient to doctor relationship, I ask questions. Sometimes he looks at me like I'm crazy because we just have that type of relationship. And I think the relationship that a patient has with their provider is so, so, so important. And the other way that I'm combating, you know, the fight for sarcoidosis is I'm a part of a campaign called Ignore No More. It's where um, 15 African-American women are Um, combating sarcoidosis by bringing awareness and we're, you know, we're getting ready to put our feet to the pavement um, on next month. So the Ignore No More campaign is live. Um, We want you to ask um, about what we're doing. We want you to engage. We want you to connect. We want you to get educated. And so be on the lookout for, you know, the Ignore No More campaign because there are going to be some more surprising factors into why African-American women are more likely, you know, to be affected by sarcoidosis. And the, the numbers are already surprising us. So, you know, be your own advocate, get involved in other awareness opportunities. Um, And if you know somebody with sarcoidosis, get on board, get educated, Um, try to gain as much knowledge as possible um, when it comes to what they deal with on a daily basis. And it's not that they don't look sick because you don't know what's going on on the inside. It's a lot of things that play into that. So just try to be supportive, you know, and stuff like that. All right. Now, I, I know that one of the things, because you and I have been on the podcast talking about this, mm-hmm. but one of the things that you look at is um, African-American women are, what, three times more likely than even yep. than African-American men? Um, African-American women are three times more likely to develop sarcoidosis than white women and white men. And they're also up to two times more likely to have the disease than African-American men. So, yeah. Right. And then, and then some of the other barriers, unfortunately, often come along with, with being an African. So you're more likely to get it, but then you're also more likely to live in a, a, a socio socioeconomically deprived area, which includes the food deserts and all the other things that come along with it, transportation issues, childcare, all those other issues. So it just keeps compounding itself, does it not? Right. And we also have a higher mortality rate. We have a higher hospitalization rate. And it there are a lot of severe and chronic forms of sarcoidosis. And we're more likely to have all those forms of sarcoidosis than any other demographic. So what would you like to see happen? Ooh, that's Do we have time? <laughs> um, no, we no. don't. So, What I would like to see happen is more understanding from physicians, more understanding from the people around us. Um, I really want people to get educated about what sarcoidosis is. Um, Ask those questions. And I I want people to donate to the cause. I want people to help raise awareness and funding so that more research can happen. Um, And I think when we have a collective, you know, people who are, are on board, I think it can work. I believe it can work. 
And what about clinical trials? Do we, do we need more people stepping up, more African-American women in particular? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, Dr. James and I have talked about that as well. And I've actually done a, clinic, a couple of clinic, uh, clinical trials with him down at MUSC. So clinical trials are more vital than we give it credit. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, not too long ago, there was a clinical trial that was done that something now has just been FDA approved for sarcoidosis. So the clinical trials are extremely important. There are hundreds of clinical trials going on right now for sarcoidosis. And, you know, we just need the people to actually be aware of those clinical trials, number one. And we need to try to see how we can get those people involved in um, those clinical trials. And that's the reason why I became an advocate and an ambassador, because I want to get people involved. Dr. James, I just want to ask you a sort of a dovetail related question right here, because clinical trials can be somewhat difficult. And we're already dealing with a population of people that has difficulty making their doctor's appointments. What can we say to encourage people to participate in these trials that are, that are African-American women in particular? Um, you know, I think... A lot of it starts with awareness of the trials and being educated about the opportunities that are out there, just like Josta said. Um, you know, I think a big part of it, too, in terms of enrolling patients, a lot of it boils down to having that sort of trusting doctor-patient relationship where, you know, if some physician comes to you who's just some Joe Schmo off the street and says, hey, take this drug and I'll, you know, cover your health care for a year, you're not going to trust them probably. But if you have somebody you have a relationship, that's that's important. And I'll, you know, historically, you know, just for perspective for everybody on the call, as a field, we have really failed, I don't want to say miserably, but failed pretty significantly in including African Americans in a lot of the landmark studies. And if you think about actually moving the field forward, we really need to enroll the patients with the worst disease in these trials. And if you look at some of the major studies that have been done in sarcoidosis, you know, you're talking 60 to 70% white patients and, you know, a minority of black patients. And so, you know, from my perspective, in terms of wanting to better understand the disease and know better treatment options, if we don't do a better job of, of recruiting those types of patients into these trials, it's going to be really hard to, to really move the field forward. So I think it's really important to, to have everybody involved in the trials. And if I can piggyback off of what he just said, the one thing that we can do, you know, from your home itself is you can join FSR's patient registry. They have a patient registry and it asks all those demographic questions. Um, so you don't even have to leave your house to do that. So if you join the registry, that'll help out with the uh, uh, research part and it'll help out with, you know, finding out, you know, where we are with that poll and everything like that. So it'll come back some of those barriers as well to help aid and move research forward. Right. But Jim, you just wrote a, uh, you just wrote a blog that kind of uh, deals with um, supporting specific research to help these, these groups that are challenged. Why, why did you feel compelled to write that blog and, and what's the, what's the message? Uh, John, there, there was quite a few people who didn't really understand the importance of the campaign that uh, Chasta mentioned that uh, being rolled out. Uh, and they were calling out African-American women specifically. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was kind of a feeling that this was an either or instead of a both and campaign. Uh, and uh, they were they were talking about the systemic and compounding barriers that 
African-American women experienced. And somehow they thought that this negated uh, and discounted the barriers that they were personally experiencing. And, uh, and it, nothing could be farther from the truth. It, it all goes back to the illustration that Dr. James explained with three people trying to watch the game from the other side of the fence. Right now, because it's so urgent, African-American women are dying at such a, a, a high rate. It's, it's astronomical. Um, Chester mentioned some of the other stats, but African-American women are dying at 13 times the rate of Caucasians. I mean, you can't, you can't discount that. I mean, it, there's no way you can make that stat look anything but what it is. It's, it's just, it, we got to do something about it. So we, as a community, we must make sure that everybody can see over the fence. So that must me, means we've got to focus on African-American women and provide the support, the resources and tools, whatever's needed, so we can address those barriers so that they can access good care. However, here's the really cool part. Um, in doing so, uh, whatever comes up with that, it helps all of us. So it's not like that because we're focusing on this and the research that outcomes, they're not going to come up with this great little pill that helps African-American women. It's going to help all of us. So um, each barrier that gets addressed and removed, they're removing parts of the fence for all of us. So uh, everything moves towards a more transparent and shorter fence that we all deserve. So we all get good seats at the game. Uh, the most effective way to do this is focus on the group experiencing the, the most barriers and the most prevalence of sarcoidosis, and that's African-American women. As Chester shared, African-American women experience the greatest burden, so why not focus on them? Therefore, we, we all thrive. You know, uh, We can't thrive until we all thrive, so that's, uh, that's the best way to do it. Here's, here's a great example of that. And Dr. James, I know that it's coming up, but it's, it's uh, 8.30 on the East Coast, and, and I know you've got a hard out tonight, so I hope you can stay with us as long as possible. But um, the, the, it's, not the, it's not the either or, it's the both and. I did an interview um, with a woman named Erica last night, African-American woman. Um, she has sarcoidosis. I have sarcoidosis. We both take azathioprine or azathioprine or thioprine, however you want to say it, that's the drug we both take to control our disease. So why does it, you know, why can't it be both and, right, Dr. James? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's um, a great example where, you know, again, you mentioned early the idea of sarcoid being snowflakes. You know, I have never met a patient where I could look at them from the door and say, I know what you're going to need to fix your sarcoid. I mean, everybody's going to be different. They may be more concerned about side effects with one drug or, you know, may have had a family member have had this happen where they took methotrexate in the past and their family member had problems and they're like, no way am I going to take methotrexate? That's totally fine. And again, that's why this becomes a conversation where, you know, you can talk to patients and determine what's best for them as an individual. You know, Chasta alluded to, you know, there was recently a study that was part of the clinical studies network, um, through FSR, looking at ATIRE 1923, which is a totally new therapy option, and was the first successful clinical trial in sarcoid, you know, in almost a decade for a new therapy option. And so, 
you know, we're now going to be phase three. So, you know, moving that next step, but again, trying to find the patients who are going to fit best for that drug. So then we can have it available to everybody is, is a huge step forward. Um, but it is, you know, all the patients are different. And so it's something where you got to have the time and the wherewithal to sit down with people and determine what's best for them. But having more options is always better. All right. Any closing thoughts before you have to leave us tonight? Uh, no, I just want to reemphasize, you know, one Chas's point about the education and advocacy part. You know, I'm a strong believer that, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease when it comes to, to health care and, and improving outcomes for everybody. Um, you know, and the, the other thing I want to emphasize is Jim's point of, you know, keeping in perspective how complex people's individual lives may be and how many things they may have going on contributing to some of their problems. And, you know, we all need to sort of, you know, assess, acknowledge and address our personal biases, both from a patient side, but also from a physician side. And, um, you know, FSR is a great resource to do that, both for patients and physicians. Great. Thank you for your time here tonight, because you had told us ahead of time that that uh, we when we said it might go over, you said, well, 830 is about all I can do. So uh, sorry, I, I have a, uh, a son's birthday party I have to get back to. But uh, thank you guys for having me. <laughs> thank you for taking your valuable time to help educate us. And so we're just going to continue. I, I really have, uh, before we just get some closing thoughts from Jim and Chasta, Jim, you have, there are some specific things that FSR is doing that you work with as a patient advocate. If we could just kind of tick down that list pretty quickly here um, before we get some, some closing thoughts from you and Chasta. Yeah, specifically uh, it, uh, about raising awareness. Pro programs like this, uh, that uh, our webinar series, our uh, patient uh at the education summits uh, and uh, information education uh, to better understand sarcoidosis uh, and become better self-advocates. The best way to do that is to make sure that uh, you are signed up uh, uh, on our mailing list. So while you're out registering on the patient registry uh, up in the right-hand corner, uh, make sure you sign up uh, for our newsletters. That way you're uh, best uh, informed of everything happening at uh, FSR. Uh, the next is you can join forces with other rare disease organizations and coalitions and government agencies to, uh, to fight uh, disparities in care. Uh, you can join with FSR and our community engagement group to, to learn how to, to work with, uh, uh, to speak with uh, government officials and, and lobby to make sure that we have the, the best laws in place. Uh, and here's a great one. Uh, Dr. James mentioned, listen to other people's stories and, and learn how um, the diseases affect them. FSR has a bunch of uh, stories out there. Uh, John as the uh, Sark Fighter podcast has uh, now a hundred plus uh, stories out there of, of people, interesting, amazing people. Uh, with stories about sarcoidosis, and uh, it gives you a great understanding. And then uh, we've just talked about it, engage in research to, uh, to know about research that's happening and improve the diagnosis and treatment and, uh, and the burden of this stinking disease. Chasta, any last thoughts? 
Um, just simple. Be your own advocate. Um, don't rely on anybody else to tell you how you feel, um, to get the information that you need. Um, be your own advocate. Um, 17 years ago, I had no idea what we were in for, but I'm grateful that I had the wherewithal to actually advocate for myself to want to know more about what this disease did to my body, what it's doing to my body and what could possibly happen to my body. So if you can't be your own advocate, then who's going to do it for you? Be your own advocate, get educated. Um, FSR has a ton of information out there. Develop that relationship with your uh, physician, your providers. Um, call those insurance companies. Make sure you get everything that you can get um, <clears throat> as far as making yourself aware. Um, and once you start working for yourself, then you can get into the position of working and advocating for other people. So make sure that, you know, I often say to myself that this disease isn't what happens to me. It's what I do for it, for me to happen for me. So, you know, you have to be your own advocate, like, you know, get out there, pound the pavement and get all the information you can. Okay. Jim, you agree? I never disagree with Chasta because she is always right. But yeah, I mean, uh, when I talk to patients, it's first number one, become the best advocate you can be, be informed, um, get along with your doctor, cultivate the, the best healthcare team you can. It's okay to, to change doctors. If, if you don't click with your doctor, get another one, get, get the best all-star team you can get. And, uh, and, uh, and become your best advocate. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. And I just want to wrap up because I'm also uh, uh, an advocate and a member of the uh, Patient Advisory Committee for, for FSR and uh, in addition to hosting the, the podcast. And, you know, I'm, I hear, I see a lot of different patterns now that I've interviewed so many people in the sarcoidosis space. In, in particular, I'm talking about patients here. I've interviewed a lot of researchers as well. Um, and you just see a pattern where something unusual starts to happen in somebody's life. And then they start going to a doctor, then they see another doctor, then they see another doctor, and eventually they get to their diagnosis. And then once you get to the diagnosis, then you're starting a whole nother battle. Um, trying to figure out what, what therapies are going to work for you and what isn't going to work for you. And, and for, for those of us, unfortunately, who uh, sarcoidosis does not go away on its own, you are looking at spending a lot of time in doctor's offices and, and with, you know, within the healthcare system. And I was, knock on wood, I have been healthy as a horse my whole life. And all of a sudden, here I am in my late 50s, and here comes sarcoidosis. And I was the guy that never had to go to the doctor. And now, now I am spending a lot of time. And when you have a chronic condition like, like we all do, um, and you start looking at then having to overcome all those other obstacles that make life that much more difficult for people, um, you can see where it's not just a matter of going to the doctor here and there. It's a matter of it becomes a part of your life. It's a lifestyle. And if transportation or childcare or eating well or all those other things are an issue, um, which all of which at some level comes back to being indicated by your zip code, which is what I would call the greatest indicator. It's not the cause, but it's the indicator of your, of your likelihood to have obstacles to healthcare. Then you really start to understand 
what certain groups are up against. And unfortunately, uh, sarcoidosis seems to target the groups that have the most obstacles to overcome. And that's one of the things that we, we really wanted to point out here tonight. One of the, um, you know, there, there's many, many great lessons along the way, but if there's one takeaway that I have from tonight, it's, it is that. So um, thank you all for tuning in tonight. And before I let you go, I wanna turn it back over to Mindy. She's got a couple of closing comments. So Mindy, it's all yours. Yeah, thank you so much, John. And thank you so much to our panel um, for such an amazing discussion. And thank you to our audience for such a lively engagement. Uh, we look forward to taking a serious look at your many wonderful suggestions that came through through the chat. As a reminder, you can find more out find out more about the topics discussed here today uh, and FSR's African-American Women in Sarcoidosis campaign, Ignore No More, and our 22 partners um, on our website, which I will pop into the chat for you right now. Uh, we've added it to the chat um, and the social media campaign officially launches next week during Black History Month. So make sure you're following FSR at Stop Sarcoidosis on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Uh, to join us in spreading awareness about sarcoidosis. And we want to once again, thank our sponsors, Malincroft Pharmaceuticals for their support. And once again, thank you to our panel and thank you to all of you for attending and good night. Hey everyone. A zombie just feeding at stumbling. Again, thanks to Dr. James, Jim Kuhn, and Chasta for sharing their stories and expertise. Thanks to FSR for allowing me to moderate this discussion and for uh, having the drive and vision to put this seminar together. I hope those of you listening have some significant takeaways with respect to what some of our fellow SARC fighters are up against. And just think about that exercise where you start with the number 18 and then you begin subtracting uh, based upon the uh, the issues that you face in your life. And I suspect that there are many, if not most people, in fact, we know that from the data we received, who are well below that 18 figure. And that represents those who are uh, most likely to be able to get to receive, pay for treatment, and to have their doctor listen and respond appropriately. I can tell you that that's me. I'm the white male with good insurance and transportation and uh, and the ability to eat well. Um, I didn't have to subtract many points, that's for sure, but uh, a lot of people do, and that's that's what we got to look at. So, great food for thought. I hope you enjoyed this special edition of the Sark Fighter podcast. Please share it on your social media. Let's help spread the word of all the good that's being done from FSR and, and all the hardworking people out there trying to find solutions and to give us hope. All right? Until next time, keep fighting. Trying to keep up the pace Dead men walking